audience, if you're listening to this on the day that it goes out, happy Halloween. Um, I hope you're having a nice spooky Halloween or a cute Halloween, if that's the kind of thing that you like to do. Um, but I like a scary Halloween sometimes. I like a, a cute Halloween sometimes. To be perfectly honest, I imagine I will be... Um, when at the time this goes live, I imagine I will be sat on the sofa underneath a blanket uh, watching some kind of a cute film and eating a lot of sweets because that's what you do at Halloween. You're supposed to get all scared, but then you get under a blanket and you chill out and you um, just watch a, a movie that's not actually that scary. I just want to say in advance that uh, as I'm recording this, my cat appears to be sprinting around my house as though she's in some kind of a race with the devil. Um, so if you hear some bizarre thunderous footsteps, that's her. Um, I'll let you know if she comes in during the recording. <laughs> Today I'm going to be reading from Salem's Lot, the Stephen King book. It, um, I think, was his second or third book, and it absolutely petrified me. There's um, this brilliant, brilliant foreword in the copy I've got, which is the Hodder Publications copy with sort of... Um, sort of black all over but there's a sort of bottom banner that's in red and it talks about Stephen King a bit you'd you'd know it if you saw it sort of thing it says Hodder Publications on the side and um in the foreword Stephen King says something like um I don't believe in vampires I never did believe in vampires but while I was writing this book I think I started to convince myself so why don't you turn off all the lights in your house turn off the tv turn off the radio sit in a corner and turn the lamp on and read this book and slowly but surely I am confident that I will convince you vampires are real. That's precisely what I invite you to do. Turn off the lights, turn off the TV, put your headphones in so it's just me talking into your ears and, well, let's talk about vampires, shall we? Something had awakened him. He lay still in the ticking dark, looking at the ceiling. A noise. Some noise, but the house was silent. There it was again, scratching. Mark Petrie turned over in bed and looked through the window, and Danny Glick was staring in at him through the glass, his skin grave pale, his eyes reddish and feral. Some dark substance was smeared about his lips and chin, and when he saw Mark looking at him, he smiled and showed teeth grown hideously long and sharp. Let me in, the voice whispered, and Mark was not sure if the words had crossed dark air or were only in his mind. He became aware that he was frightened. His body had known before his mind. He had never been so frightened, not even when he got tired swimming back from the float at Popham Beach and thought he was going to drown. His mind, still that of a child in a thousand ways, made an accurate judgment of his position in seconds. He was in peril of more than his life. Let me in, Mark. I want to play with you. There was nothing for that hideous entity outside the window to hold on to. His room was on the second floor, and there was no ledge. Yet somehow it hung, suspended in space. Or perhaps it was clinging to the outside shingles like some dark insect. Mark, I finally came, Mark. Please. Of course, you have to invite them inside. He knew that from his monster magazines the one his mother was afraid might damage or warp him in some way. 
he got out of bed and almost fell down. It was only then that he realised fright was too mild a word for this. Even terror did not express what he felt. The pallid face outside the window tried to smile, but it had lain in darkness too long to remember precisely how. What Mark saw was a twitching grimace, a bloody mask of tragedy. Yet, if you looked in the eyes, it wasn't so bad. If you looked in the eyes, you weren't so afraid anymore, and you saw all that you had to do was open the window and say, Come on in, Danny. And then you wouldn't be afraid at all, because you'd be at one with Danny and all of them and at one with him. You'd be- No! That's how they get you. He dragged his eyes away, and it took all of his willpower to do it. Mark, let me in! I command it. He commands it. Mark began to walk toward the window again. There was no help for it. There was no possible way to deny that voice. As he drew closer to the glass, the evil little boy's face on the other side began to twitch and grimace with eagerness. Fingernails black with earth scratched across the window pane. Think of something quick, quick! The rain, he whispered hoarsely. The rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. In vain he thrusts his fists against the posts, and still insists he sees the ghosts. Danny Glick hissed at him. Mark, open the window! Betty Bitter bought some butter. The window, Mark! He commands it! But he says, Betty, this butter's bitter. He was weakening. That whispering voice was seeing through his barricade, and the command was imperative. Mark's eyes fell on his desk, littered with model monsters, now so bland and foolish. His eyes fixed abruptly on part of the display and widened slightly. The plastic ghoul was walking through a plastic graveyard, and one of the monuments was in the shape of a cross. With no pause for thought or consideration, both would have come to an adult, his father for instance, and both would have undone him. Mark swept up the cross, curled it into a tight fist and said loudly, Come on in then! The face became suffused with an expression of vulpine triumph. The window slid up and Danny stepped in and took two paces forward. The exhalation from that opening mouth was fetid, beyond description, a smell of charnel pits. Cold, fish-white hands descended on Mark's shoulders, the head cocked, dog-like, the other lip curled away from those shining canines. Mark brought the plastic cross around in a vicious swipe and laid it against Danny Glick's cheek. His scream was horrible, unearthly and silent. It echoed only in the corridors of his brain and the chambers of his soul. The smile of triumph on the Glick thing's mouth became a yawning grimace of agony. Smoke spurted from the pallid flesh and, for just a moment, before the creature twisted away and half died, half fell out of the window, Mark felt the flesh yield, like smoke. And then it was over, as if it had never happened. But for a moment, the cross shone with a fierce light, as if an inner wire had been ignited. Then it dwindled away, leaving only a blue afterimage in front of his eyes. Through the grating in the floor, he heard the distinctive click of the lamp in his parents' bedroom and his father's voice. What in hell was that? That's probably the bit that most people know from the Salem's Lot uh, movie and the Salem's Lot sort of miniseries and all the rest of it. Um, the really iconic imagery of a, of a young boy that's been turned into a vampire. He's clawed his way up out of the grave and now he's hovering outside his best friend's window, begging to be let in so that he can feed and, and drink his, his friend's blood. And I think um, this is 
one of the first examples in, in Stephen King's work of something that Danny and I have talked about on the podcast. This idea that um, he uses children as a gateway between what's real and what's paranormal. The idea that um, children and their sort of limitless imagination can see the world in a very different way to, to what an adult can. And that is what allows children to have a different view on the supernatural and, and to be more scared. But in this case, the child is more prepared than any of the adults are. It's this true, utter fear that he feels within him that's drawing him to the window and compelling him to do things. And before he knows it, he's overcome it. I like that the child overcomes the problem because he can't bear to think about how. It's all instinct, it's all desperation, but the adults in the book, they all believe themselves to be above this. They say, no, 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 I will solve this problem through logic and reason. And then a lot of them don't come out the other side of that. I like, well, I don't like it. I loathe the way that it utterly petrifies you when you're lying in bed and, and you see something just scratching at the window and you think, oh my God, what the hell is that? What the hell is that? And then you get up and it's a tree branch. I was there as a kid. I know loads of people must have been. So to have that fear utterly brought home and shown to you as a, as, 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 no, it's not a tree branch. It is actually a vampire this time. He has blood round his lips and earth under his fingernails. He's going to come and eat you. To feel that fear brought home is a really powerful sensation. I've got another bit that I want to read, so I'm going to just flip through the pages, find it, and then we're going to get all the more scared. I hope you're getting nice and scared this Halloween, if you are listening to this when it gets released. Um, if you're not, I hope you're getting uh, nice and scared on not Halloween. Just a little bit of background for this scene. Uh, the two characters that are talking throughout the scene, um, one of them is a writer and one of them is a doctor. Uh, they think that the lady that's lying on the slab in the morgue in front of them um, might be a vampire. They don't know and they don't want to think that it is, but they think, well, for the sake of making sure, we should wait till sundown and see if the dead come back to life. It was almost dark. Ben got up from the wooden folding chair, walked over to the window that looked out on the funeral parlour's back lawn, and saw nothing in particular. It was quarter to seven, and evening's shadows were very long. The grass was still green despite the lateness of the year, and he supposed that the thoughtful mortician would endeavour to keep it so until snow covered it, a symbol of continuing life in the midst of death of the year. He found the thought inordinately depressing and turned from the view. I wish I had a cigarette, he said. They're killers, Jimmy told him without turning around. He was watching a Sunday night wildlife program on Maury Green's small Sony. Actually, so do I. I quit while the Surgeon General did his number on cigarettes ten years ago. Bad PR not to. But I always wake up grabbing for the pack on the nightstand. I thought you quit. I keep it there for the same reason some alcoholics keep a bottle of scotch on the kitchen shelf. Willpower, son. Ben looked at the clock. 6.47. Maury Green's Sunday paper said sundown would officially arrive at 7.02 EST. Jimmy had handled everything quite neatly. Maury Green was a small man who had answered the door in an unbuttoned black vest and an open-collar white shirt. 
His sober, inquiring expression had changed to a broad smile of welcome. Shalom, Jimmy, he cried. It's good to see you. Where have you been keeping yourself? Saving the world from the common cold, Jimmy said, smiling as Green wrung his hand. I want you to meet a very good friend of mine, Maury Green. Ben Mears. Ben's hand was enveloped in both of Maury's. His eyes glistened behind the black-rimmed glasses he wore. Shalom also, any friend of Jimmy's and so on. Come on in, both of you. I would call Rachel... Please don't, Jimmy said. We've come to ask a favour, a rather large one. Green glanced more closely at Jimmy's face. A rather large one, he jeered softly. And why? What have you ever done for me that my son should graduate third in his class from Northwestern? Anything, Jimmy. Jimmy blushed. I did what anyone would have done, Maury. I'm not going to argue with you, Green said. Ask. What is it that has you and Mr. Mears so worried? Have you been in an accident? No, nothing like that. He had taken them into a small kitchenette behind the chapel, and as they talked he brewed coffee in a battered old pot that sat on a hot plate. Has Norbert come after Miss Mrs. Glick yet? Jimmy asked. No, and not a sign of him, Maury said, putting sugar and cream on the table. That one will come by at eleven tonight and wonder why I'm not here to let him in, he sighed. Poor lady. Such tragedy in one family. And she looks so sweet, Jimmy. That old poop reared and brought her in. She was your patient? No, Jimmy said. But Ben and I, uh, we'd like to sit up with her this evening, Maury. Right downstairs. Green paused in the act of reaching for the coffee pot. Sit up with her? Examine her, you mean? No, Jimmy said steadily. Just sit up with her. You're joking. He looked at them closely. No, I, I see you're not. Why would you want to do that? I can't tell you that, Maury. Oh. He poured the coffee, sat down with them and sipped. Not too strong. Very nice. Has she got something? Something infectious? Jimmy and Ben exchanged a glance. Not in the accepted sense of the word, Jimmy said finally. You'd like me to keep my mouth shut about this, eh? Yes. And if Norbert comes? I can handle Norbert, Jimmy said. I'll tell him Reardon asked me to check her for infectious encephalitis. He'll never check. Green nodded. Norbert doesn't know enough to check his watch unless someone asks him. Is it okay, Maury? Sure, sure. I thought you said a big favour. It's bigger than you think, maybe. When I finish my coffee, I'll go home and see what horror Rachel has produced for my Sunday dinner. Here is the key. Lock up when you go, Jimmy. Jimmy tucked it away in his pocket. I will. Thanks again, Maury. Anything? Just do me one favour in return. Sure, what? If she says nothing... Write it down for posterity. He began to chuckle, saw the identical look on their faces, and stopped. It was five to seven. Ben felt tension begin to seep into his body. Might as well stop staring at the clock, Jimmy said. You can't make it go any faster by looking at it. Ben started guiltily. I doubt very much that vampires, if they exist at all, rise at almanac sunset, Jimmy said. It's never full dark. Nonetheless, he got up and shut off the TV, catching a wood duck in mid-squawk. Silence descended on the room like a blanket. They were in Green's workroom, and the body of Marjorie Glick was on a stainless steel table equipped with gutters and foot stirrups that could be raised or depressed. It reminded Ben of the tables in hospital delivery rooms. Jimmy had turned back the sheet that covered her body when they entered, and had made a brief examination. 
Mrs. Glick was wearing a burgundy-coloured quilted housecoat and knitted slippers. There was a band-aid on her left shin, perhaps covering a shaving nick. Ben looked away from it, but his eyes were drawn back again and again. What do you think? Ben had asked. I'm not going to commit myself, when another three hours will probably decide one way or the other. But her condition is strikingly similar to that of Mike Ryerson. No surface lividity, no sign of rigour or incipient rigour. And he had pulled the sheet back and would say no more. It was 7.02. Jimmy suddenly said, Where's your cross? Ben started. Cross? Jesus, I don't have one. You were never a Boy Scout, Jimmy said, and opened his bag. I, however, always come prepared. He brought out two tongue depressors, stripped off the protective cellophane, and bound them together at right angles with a twist of Red Cross tape. Bless it, he said to Ben. What? I, I can't, I don't know how. Then make it up, Jimmy said, and his pleasant face suddenly appeared strained. You're the writer, you'll have to be a metaphysician. For Christ's sake, hurry, I think something is going to happen. Can't you feel it? And Ben could. Something seemed to be gathering in the slow purple twilight, unseen as yet, but heavy and electric. His mouth had gone dry, and he had to wet his lips before he could speak. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Then he added, as an afterthought, in the name of the Virgin Mary, too. Bless this cross, and... And... Words rose to his lips with sudden, eerie surety. The Lord is my shepherd, he spoke, and the words fell into the shadowy room as stones would have fallen into a deep lake, sinking out of sight without a ripple. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. Jimmy's voice joined his own chanting. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It seemed hard to breathe properly. Then Ben found that his whole body had crawled into goose flesh, and the short hairs on the nape of his neck had begun to prickle, as if they were rising into hackles. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall... The sheet covering Marjorie Glick's body had begun to tremble. A hand fell out below the sheet, and the fingers began to dance jaggedly on the air, twisting and turning. My Christ, am I seeing this? Jimmy whispered. His face had gone pale, and his freckles stood out like spatters on a window pane. And follow me all the days of my life, Ben finished. Jimmy, look at the cross. The cross was glowing. The light spilled over his hand in an elvish flood. A slow, choked voice spoke in the stillness, as grating as shards of broken crockery. Danny. Ben felt his tongue cleave to the roof of his mouth. The form under the sheet was sitting up. Shadows in the darkening room moved and slithered. Danny, where are you, darling? The sheet fell from her face and crumpled up in her lap. The face of Marjorie Glick was a pallid, moonlike circle in the semi-dark punched only by the black holes of her eyes. She saw them, and her mouth jutted open in an awful, cheated snarl. The fading glow of daylight flashed against her teeth. She swung her legs over the side of the table. One of the slippers fell off and lay unheeded. Sit right there, Jimmy told her. Don't try to move. Her answer was a snarl, a dark silver sound, dog-like. She slid off the table, staggered, and walked toward them. Ben caught himself looking into those punched eyes and wrenched his gaze away. There were black 
galaxies shot with red in there, you could see yourself drowning and liking it. Don't look in her face, he told Jimmy. They were retreating from her without thought, allowing her to force them toward the narrow hall which led to the stairs. Try the cross, Ben. He had almost forgotten he had it. Now he held it up and the cross seemed to flash with brilliance. He had to squint against it. Mrs. Glick made a hissing, dismayed noise and threw her hands up in front of her face. Her features seemed to draw together, twitching and writhing like a nest of snakes. She tottered a step backwards. That's got her, Jimmy yelled. Ben advanced on her, holding the cross out before him. She hooked one hand into her claw and made a swipe at it. Ben dipped it below her hand and then thrust it at her. A ululating stream came out of her throat. For Ben, the rest took on the maroon tones of nightmare. Although worse horrors were to come, the dreams of the following days and nights were always of driving Marjorie Glick back toward that mortician's table, where the sheet that had covered her crumpled beside one knitted slipper. She retreated unwillingly, her eyes alternating between the hateful cross and an area on Ben's neck to the right of the chin. The sounds that were wrenched out of her were inhuman gibberings and hissings and glottals, and there was something so blindly reluctant in her withdrawal that she began to seem like some giant lumbering insect. Ben thought, if I didn't have this cross out front she would rip open my throat with her nails and gulp down the blood that spurted out of the jugular and carotid just like a man in the desert dying of thirst, she would bathe in it. Jimmy had cut away from his side and was circling her to the left. She didn't see him. Her eyes were fixed only on Ben, dark and filled with hatred, filled with fear. Jimmy circled the mortician's table, and when she backed around it, he threw both arms around her neck with a convulsive yell. She gave a high, whistling cry and twisted in his grip. Ben saw Jimmy's nails pull away a flap of her skin at the shoulder, and nothing welled out. The cut was like a lipless mouth, and then, incredibly, she threw him across the room. Jimmy crashed into the corner, knocking Maury Green's portable TV off its stand. She was on him in a flash, moving in a hunched, scrabbling run that was nearly spider-like. Ben caught a shadow-scrawled glimpse of her falling on top of him, ripping at his collar, and then the sideward predatory lunge of her head, the yawning of her jaws as she battened on him. Jimmy Cody screamed, the high, despairing scream of the utterly damned. Ben threw himself at her, stumbling and nearly falling over the shattered television on the floor. He could hear her harsh breathing, like the rattle of a straw, and below that the revolting sound of smacking, champing lips. He grabbed her by the collar of the housecoat and yanked her upwards, forgetting the cross momentarily. Her head came around with frightening swiftness. Her eyes were dilated and glittering, her lips and chin slicked with blood that was black in this near-total darkness. Her breath in his face was foul beyond measure, the breath of tombs, as if in slow motion he could see her tongue lick across her teeth. He brought the cross up just as she jerked him forward into her embrace, her strength making him feel like something made of rags. The rounded point of the tongue depressor that formed the cross's downstroke struck her under the chin and then continued upwards with no fleshy resistance. Ben's eyes were stunned by a flash of not light that happened not before his eyes but seemingly behind them. There was the hot and porcine smell of burning flesh. Her scream this time was full-throated and agonised. He sensed rather than saw her throw herself backward, stumble over the television, and fall on the floor, one white arm thrown outward to break her fall. She was up again with wolf-like agility, her eyes narrowed in pain, yet still filled with insane hunger. The flesh of her lower jaw was smoking and black, she was snarling at him. Come on, you bitch! Come on, come on! He held the cross out before him again, and backed her into the corner at the far left of the room, 
When he got her there, he was going to jam the cross through her forehead. But even as her back pressed the narrowing walls, she uttered a high squealing giggle that made him wince. It was like the sound of a fork being dragged across a porcelain sink. Even now one laughs, even now your circle is smaller. And before his eyes, her body seemed to elongate and become translucent. For a moment he thought she was still there, laughing at him, and then the white glow of the street lamp outside was shining on bare wall, and there, s and there was only a fleeting sensation on his nerve endings, which seemed to be reporting that she had seeped into the very pores of the wall, like smoke. She was gone, and Jimmy was screaming. He flicked on the overhead bar of fluorescence and turned to look at Jimmy, but Jimmy was already on his feet, holding his hands to the side of his neck. The fingers were sparkling scarlet. She bit me, Jimmy howled. Oh God, Jesus, she bit me. Ben went to him, tried to take him in his arms, and Jimmy pushed him away. His eyes rolled madly in their sockets. Don't touch me, I'm unclean. Jimmy, give me my bag. Jesus, Ben, I can feel it in there. I can feel it working in me. For Christ's sake, give me my bag. It was in the corner. Ben got it, and Jimmy snatched it. He went to the mortician's table and set the bag on it. His face was death pale, shining with sweat. The blood pulsed remorselessly from the torn gash in the side of his neck. He sat down on the table and opened the bag and swept through it, his breath coming in whining gasps through his open mouth. She bit me, he muttered into the bag. Her mouth, oh God, her dirty, filthy mouth. He pulled a bottle of disinfectant out of the bag and sent the cap spinning across the tiled floor. He leaned back, supporting himself on one arm, and upended the bottle over his throat, and it splashed the wound, his slacks, the table. Blood washed away in threads, his eyes closed, and he screamed once, then again. The bottle never wavered. Jimmy, what can I... In a minute, Jimmy muttered. Wait, it's better, I think. Wait, just wait. He tossed the bottle away and it shattered on the floor. The wound, washed clean of the tainted blood, was clearly visible. Ben saw there was not one, but two puncture wounds not far from the jugular, each of them horribly mangled. Jimmy had pulled an ampule and a hypo from the bag. He stripped the protective covering from the needle and jabbed it through the ampule. His hands were shaking so badly he had to make two thrusts at it. He filled the needle and held it out to Ben. Tetanus, he said. Give it to me, here! He held his arm out, rotated to expose the armpit. Jimmy, that'll knock you out. No, no, it won't. Do it. Ben took the needle and looked questioningly into Jimmy's eyes. He nodded. Ben injected the needle. Jimmy's body tensed like spring steel. For a moment, he was a sculpture in agony. Every tendon pulled out into sharp relief. Little by little, he began to relax. His body shuddered in reaction, and Ben saw that tears had mixed with the sweat on his face. Put the cross on me, he said. If I'm still dirty from her, it'll, it'll do something. Will it? I'm sure it will. When you were going after her, I looked up, and I wanted to go after you. God help me, I, I, I did. And I looked at that cross, and I, my belly wanted to heave up. Ben put the cross on his neck. Nothing happened. Its glow, if there had been a glow at all, was entirely gone. Ben took the cross away. Okay, Jimmy said. I think that's all we can do. He rummaged in his bag again, found an envelope containing two pills, and crushed them into his mouth. Dope, he said. Great invention. Thank God I used the John before that, before it happened. I think I pissed myself, but I only came about six drops. I think I pissed myself, but it only came to about six drops. Can you bandage my neck? I think so, Ben said. Jimmy handed him gauze, adhesive tape, and a pair of surgical scissors. Bending to put the bandage on, he saw that the skin around the wounds had gone an ugly congealed red. 
Jimmy flinched when he pressed the bandage gently into place. He said, for a couple of minutes there, I, I thought I was going to go nuts. Really clinically nuts. Her lips on me, biting me. His throat rippled as he swallowed. And, and when she was doing it, I liked it, Ben. That's the hellish part. I actually had an erection. Can you believe it? If you hadn't been here to pull her off, I, I would have... I would have let her... Never mind, Ben said. There's one more thing I have to do that I don't like. What's that? Here, look at me a minute. Ben finished the bandage and drew back a little to look at Jimmy. What? And suddenly, Jimmy slugged him. Stars rocketed up in his brain, and he took three wandering steps backward and sat down heavily. He shook his head and saw Jimmy getting carefully down from the table and coming toward him. He groped madly for the cross, thinking, This is what's known as an O, Harry... This is what's known as an O. Henry ending, you stupid shit, you stupid, stupid... You alright? Jimmy was asking him. I'm sorry, but it's a little easier when you don't know it's coming. What the Christ? Jimmy sat down beside him on the floor. I'm going to tell you our story, he said. It's a damned poor one, but I'm pretty sure Maury Green will back it up. It'll keep my practice and keep us both out of jail or some asylum, and at this point I'm not so concerned about those things as I am about staying free to fight these... things, whatever you want to call them, another day. Do you understand that? The thrust of it, Ben said. He touched his jaw and winced. There was a knot to the left side of his chin. Somebody barged in on us while I was examining Mrs. Glick. Jimmy said, The somebody cold-cocked you and then used me for a punching bag. During the struggle, somebody bit me to make me let him go. Uh, that's all either of us remembers. All. Understand? Ben nodded. The guy was wearing a dark CPO coat, maybe blue, maybe black, and a green or grey knitted cap. That's all you saw, okay? Have you ever thought about giving up doctoring in favour of a career in creative writing? Jimmy smiled. I'm only creative in moments of extreme self-interest. Can you remember the story? Sure. I, I, I don't think it's as poor as you might believe. After all, hers isn't the first body that's disappeared lately. I'm hoping they'll add that up, but the county sheriff is a lot more on the ball than Parkins Gillespie ever thought of being. We have to watch our step. Don't embellish the story. Do you suppose anyone in officialdom will begin to see the pattern in all this? Jimmy shook his head. Not a chance in the world. We're going to have to bubble through this on our own. I'd remember that from this point on, we're criminals. Shortly after, he went to the phone and called Maury Green, then County Sheriff Homer McCaslin. When I first read this book, that was the first part that really scared me. There are lots of scenes before that that are scary in a bit more of an adult way, in, in the sense of... Um, there's a, there's a scene where um, a, a young a young boy has died, the boy who was at the window, and um, his, his parents are there sobbing, and you see the family there, and they want to they want to get him out of the grave, and they really really feel so awful about it. It's sad. It's really sad and depressing and horrible. That's the first time I've ever been jump scared by a book. Essentially, I even now I can feel I can feel my blood running cold through me. It's utterly horrendous. I. I absolutely loathe it, but that's why I wanted to do it on Halloween. It's scary, and I, I think it's good for, for two reasons, really. It, it does two things that I think Stephen King does very well. The first is that um, Stephen King is, is a master of, of using um, things that sort of I would personally consider an adult fear to connect that adult fear with a more animalistic fear that you might experience. The adult fear in this is um, when he was when he was being bitten, he had an erection, and he was he was really that's how much he was enjoying it and loving it. He wanted it, sort of thing, and that's 
a very adult thing to be afraid of. When I was a child, I wasn't scared about things like that, but now that I'm an adult, I can see the fear and how that would how that would make you feel so utterly horrendous and utterly ashamed and utterly... I can see the terror there. And he's connected that with a terror of this this monster bearing down on you and drinking your blood. It's... I see the terror there, and it, it really, really works. The other thing that I, I really do love about Salem's Lot is um, it's a it's a dormitory town, if that makes sense, the town in which this all happens. It's a small town in the middle of nowhere, but it's, it's not quite a small-town America, Jack Reacher-type story. Instead, Salem's Lot is, is a dormitory town. They refer to it as such in the book, which essentially they mean... Uh, there's lots of houses and, you know, a supermarket, hairdresser, all the rest of it, but there's no actual jobs. Everybody that lives in Salem's Lot comes to Salem's Lot, sleeps there, and then wakes up in the morning and goes to work and then comes back after the workday is over. So as this vampire infestation spreads through the town, um, the characters start to realise that nobody's going to connect these dots. This dormitory town, the students go to lots of different schools, the adults work in lots of different places, nobody will actually notice. And I think that's something that really comes through here. Where they are in this this, this mortuary, this, um, what's the word, a funeral home, they're not in the big city, they can't run out of the door of the morgue and all of a sudden they're in the, in the busy city streets of New York City and they can go and find somebody to help them. No, if they run out of the back door, they're in suburbia. There's nobody to help them. There's nothing. It's just them. And that sense of isolation is something that's really distilled into this chapter, this this little passage that I've read you. If you haven't read Salem's Lot, do. It's really, really good. It's really, really scary. I read it on holiday. I was on holiday with my wife. Um, I literally sat by the pool reading this book and being scared of vampires um it's it's really really scary it's um that first prologue where stephen king says um you know sit in a dark room and i'll make you believe in vampires i remember reading it for the first time and going <laughs> yeah that's cute and then i um i finished the book uh the the final sort of 100 pages or so i think i read in one big go i just powered through it and um i finished the book set it down on my nightstand um and then I, I got out of bed and I went to the bathroom and I brushed my teeth. And um, I remember opening the bedroom door where I'd had the light on because I was reading. And the hallway was dark. Down the stairs was dark and I couldn't see the front door because it was also, it was night time. And uh, my eyes hadn't adjusted. And I was like, there's a vampire in the hallway. There's a vampire downstairs. There's a brilliant line in the book. Um, this all seems so much more real after dark. And I, I felt it then i really felt that horror and that terror and it's chilling it's utterly chilling it's a truly iconic book i really really do recommend it uh this copy i've got as i said was the hodder publications copy it's um on the front there's a picture of a sort of hooded figure and it says yeah stephen king salem's lot do you believe in vampires um if you can if you are going to buy a copy of this book buy this copy because it has forewords, afterwords, prologues, deleted scenes, all sorts of brilliant things. Um, and more examples of what I was des describing about um, adult and animal terror being brought together. Things like um, one of the deleted scenes is um, one of these people that gets turned into a vampire. He uses his ability to sort of hypnotise people, to let him into somebody's house, and he's, he wants to have sex with them. And it's like, that's a very real, very adult fear 
combined with this animal fear of this creature with great fangs that lunges out of the darkness at you, it's really horrible, and it's really engaging writing. It's really, really well written. I, I utterly cannot recommend this book enough. Um, so get a copy from the library or your bookstore or whatever you might like, and I cannot recommend it. And most importantly of all, happy Halloween. Now that I've done my story, I think I'd better quickly do a little bit of shilling. Um, we've both got link trees, me and Danny in the podcast. You can go to linktr.ee slash, uh, I think it's Lewis underscore Brindley for me, Ohiram for Danny and Shouting Into the Void for the podcast. And you can find all of our links there to merch store, Patreon, all sorts of different bits and bobs. Um, so thank you very much for listening to my story. And thank you especially to our patrons for allowing us to make this. Um, we've got a spooky story this week for Halloween. Danny wants to do a spooky story next week. And uh, then the week after, we'll be back with our regularly scheduled programming of talking about nonsense and films. Um, so I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoy the next episode. Thank you again to patrons. Um, do you believe in vampires? Mm. Happy Halloween. Mm.